don't this want that. trying to destroy me, but I'm ready to drop first blood. Edwin, do you know what Lao Tzu said about how you should approach war? Does it involve Rambo? No. He said you should approach war the way you would approach a funeral or a death, without joy whatsoever and wanting to end it as quickly as possible. You should yeah, never get blood. any thrill out of violence. That's that first blood. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 65. Today blows my mind that we're 65 in, and, and this is the first time we are really digging deep. But today we talk about Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. I've said it probably in numerous times on the podcast. My Desert Island movie is Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. He is also one of my top three favorite directors, although that's always subjective. There's so many great ones. Our first director of the year, where we showed as much of their work as we could in 2019, was Akira Kurosawa. Who else is with us? today hey it's daniel hey, it's me carl Wade cruz the people's champion hello america i'm still here giving you comfort and confidence america an institution edwin caesar gomez growing in power strength and wisdom week by week edwin share with us just a little bit of wisdom well you know sometimes not all people are heroes as the great tian turner said we don't need no more heroes not especially you craig there you go secret movie club audience just uh chew on that over the week and think about what it means to you. So to let you guys know what's going on this week, we have a jam-packed week. We are now expanding out to Wednesday through Sunday. Wednesday, we are doing our first, well, by the time you hear this, it'll be done, but we'll still tell you because you can see the remaining two. We're doing our first Rainer Werner Fassbender 35mm movie. He's one of my favorite directors as well. I just weirdly feel, even though people know about him, he needs to be celebrated more in the United States. So we're starting off with Beware of a Holy Whore. Friday night, when you hear this, It'll probably be sold out because we only have eight tickets left. But we are doing the Talking Heads Jonathan Demi concert film, Stop Making Sense. And then on Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, both on 35, we are doing Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus and David Lynch's Dune. I'm very grateful that people are going in for that crazy double feature. So thank you. Also, we hope that you submitted a short film for our short film festival. We will now be moving to the looking at and reviewing stage, and we will reach out to 12 filmmakers by Monday, July 26th. And uh, short Shortly after that, you'll be coming to Little Tokyo to do an interview, which will be at the head of your short film, which will play for a year on Channel 35. Thank you, everybody who has submitted. But thank you to Daniel, who has been organizing and overseeing all that. We have a lot more on the hopper <laughs> that's coming up. So stay tuned for all that. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com. You can go to secretmovieclub.com to see absolutely everything that we're doing. We just thank all of you for being part of the community and seeing these movies and giving us ideas and helping us to build. We had our best day yet since the end of COVID on Saturday. The David Lynch double feature and the sold out Akira Kurosawa dreams was just what we needed. So thank you, audience. Uh, we're going to talk about Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. It would be wrong and erroneous to frame this as the most famous Japanese filmmaker because they're just so many. It's interesting. Certain countries, for whatever reason, and this is probably a podcast unto itself, had these incredible renaissances of cinema. You know, the obvious ones, France, the United States, uh, Hong Kong, Germany. But Japan is definitely uh, one of the biggest. Japan has produced Ozu, Mizuguchi, Kurosawa, Takashi Miike, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. 
Kurosawa, Hayao Miyazaki, Satoshi Kon. You can just go on and on and on and on. But today we're talking about Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa was born right around 1918, 1920. He was born to a samurai family, actually. He was very much enamored of his older brother, who was a benshi. And for people who don't know what a benshi was in Japan in the silent film era, they actually had people stand next to the screen, and it was a whole art form. And they would actually perform the entire story. And no matter where the movie came from around the world, the benshi would do it. So Kurosawa, who was enamored with his older brother, would go to Tokyo and watch his brother do these silent films. And then one day his brother said goodbye to him very strangely when Kurosawa was returning home, and his brother committed suicide that night. And uh, Kurosawa said that that one incident, without him being able to completely figure it out, was a huge touchstone incident for the rest of his life. Kurosawa actually wanted to be a painter. He was uh, radical politically in his youth, and those politics would actually stick with him. When you look at his movies, his commitment to basically people and humanistic values and looking at social injustice, that's courses throughout his filmography. He eventually would get a job at Toho, and it was a very rigorous application process where you would become an assistant director. But basically in Japan, it's not the same as here in the United States, where an assistant director is like a job that you have for the rest of your life. I mean, assistant directors are worth their weight in gold, and they basically run the set. The assistant director in Japan actually was literally what it sounds like. You would mentor with a director, and you would end up doing everything if you had a good mentor, and eventually you would direct. And that's what Kurosawa did for about 10 to 12 years of his life. Everybody recognized him immediately as a ridiculous talent. They also recognized him as very difficult because he was very confident in his talent from a very young age. But by the time he made his first film, Sanshiro Sagata, which he made in the early 40s, uh, he was 33, 34 when he made his official first feature film. But then from there, basically, he had what I consider one of the most amazing greatest runs, if not the single greatest run, if you're looking at masterpiece and frequency of any director who ever lived. And he made movies all the way to the year that he died. He uh, was even writing and storyboarding a movie called To the Sea when he passed away in his mid-80s. And he was just somebody who was drunk and in love with cinema and has made some of the greatest movies of all time, to just name-check a few. Rashomon, Seven Samurai, Akuru, Throne of Blood, High and Low, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, Redbeard, Ron. And there are so many others that are great. Those are just a few. I always talk about Seven Samurai Samurai, but I don't want to actually talk about it to start off with, because I feel it's like talking about Citizen Kane or talking about Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. It's almost like white noise at this point because it is so great. I'd rather talk about something that's maybe a little lesser known, but just very impactful. And for me, that would actually be one of his earlier movies, Stray Dog. It's a police thriller where Toshiro Mifune in his second performance for Kurosawa loses his gun at the beginning of the film, and he spends the rest of the movie trying to find out what happened to his gun. And then in a horrible way, Way, the person who stole his gun gets bullets for it and starts killing people. And so Mifune feels this double pressure and guilt because first off, he failed as a police officer because he had his gun taken from him. And secondly, now that gun is being used to kill people. And he partners with an older police detective played by Takashi Shimura. And they basically go into the post-World War II Tokyo underworld to find it. It's this amazing noir. Kurosawa already just seven years into his filmmaking career is basically making, I think, a movie that's better 
better than 99.9% of all other movies ever made. What I love about this movie, Stray Dog, and what I love about Kurosawa is if you read his book, uh, his autobiography, which I recommend to everybody, something like an autobiography, he actually ends with 30 pages of notes to aspiring filmmakers. And like he really was invested in wanting people to continue on cinema. And he really he didn't keep it hidden. He told people, here's what I learned. And one of the things he always said was, don't do it the obvious way. He was like, yeah, we got to get exposition across. But if you have to get exposition across in the first act, always find a very unique way to get that exposition across. In Stray Dog, for instance, he has a narrator who basically opens up by saying, it was the hottest day of the summer. And uh, then he cuts back and forth between Mifuni at the shooting range. Actually, he starts with Mifuni reporting the loss of his gun, and then he ping-pongs back for the first act between Mifuni telling the story and what happened and trying to remember what happened. And it's a totally great way to get you into a movie and have a first act. It's utterly cinematic. When the killer and Mifuni finally confront each other, it's the first of many movies where Kurosawa actually points out that there's very little difference between the hero of the movie and the antagonist of the movie. And it's a very unsettling moment where Kurosawa points out, it's kind of a miracle to me. He doesn't equate them. He doesn't say, oh, well, any of us could be these two people. He actually says Mifuni made decisions to lead a righteous life. And this other guy, while he's empathetic and understandable, he made decisions and this is the path that he chose. And in the way when Kurosawa was incandescent, it's not moralizing. It's actually sort of, to me, almost blindingly illuminative of things that we all have to deal with, which is that a lot of what ends up being our life are the sum total decisions we make. And Kurosawa somehow got that. And all his films are about decisions we make in moments and then how you suddenly end up where you are. In a similar vein, as, as Craig was saying, the Seven Samurai and Rashomon are so like ingrained as sort of a piece of culture. And they're incredible and deserve their own episodes. The two Kurosawas that really got to me beyond that were High and Low and Throne of Blood. Specifically about Throne of Blood, there's something so interesting about Shakespeare adaptations in terms of cinema. There seems to be a point that a lot of directors hit where they're like, I'm going to do a Shakespeare adaptation. (laughs) And there's a way that they do it that's sort of this, how do I make this stage play cinematic? And the success of that really flows from both sides because you get some stuff that's really interesting. Like I think Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is a really fascinating visual overhaul of Romeo and Juliet, I think works personally because it understands sort of the core of the play, but still brings enough style to it to make it feel different. But I think with Throne of Blood, what Kurosawa is doing is so interesting because he's essentially making a Japanese folktale out of it. What he's adapting is, is kind of this very skim and light text. And I think within that, he has so much room to play and what he does with that to create something that's so in line with his style and sensibilities. And it, I think if you didn't know it was a Shakespeare adaptation, it would just feel as, oh, this is absolutely makes sense as a Kurosawa movie. And I think that's really hard to do because you're adapting one of the most prolific writers in history. So taking the concept of Macbeth, which is has been adapted, I have no idea how many times, and making something that feels singular within that is a testament to... I think him as a director and to do it two movies after Seven Samurai. So you sort of like hit this continually rising peak and then to come back and do Throne of Blood as your next choice is I think a fascinating thing. And again, bringing back Mifuni, who's unbelievable in the role. I was doing some research on Kurosawa and specifically with Throne of Blood and the way that in his directing, Kurosawa's obsession with movement and framing beyond just the still image, how he, a ton in Throne of Blood, which I had revisited to look at for today. If something can be happening in the background of a 
scene with the weather, then he'll use it. Whether it's the dust blowing in a segment of people, whether it's raining outside, it's snowing, or the fog. The way he uses weather and the way he uses movement in his scenes, I feel like characters are always moving in Kurosawa movies. He does that thing also too, where so much of the violence is shown off screen. You get moments of, of heavy violence on screen, um, but the way that they're staged and the way that they're blocked, it's so often hidden. There's the death scene, I think, in front of the road where that woman is decapitated and someone steps in front of her right as it happens so that the blood spray happens on the wall and it's all in the single shot but nothing's seen it's all left to the imagination and Ron and Ron yeah I'm thinking Ron but it makes it so much more impactful and I think here in Throne of Blood it's almost all of the violence is off screen which is such an interesting decision because there's so much of it implied but he's focuses so much more on the character and the way that they're getting the things that they're trying to do and the way that they're using other people to manipulate to do that rather than showing it. It's fascinating to me, the entirety of Throne of Blood, of the way that you're adapting someone's work that's been adapted a thousand times, maybe not so much at the time, but in terms of now, what we you can get a billion versions of Macbeth on video. I think what he accomplishes with that is insane. And a, a Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers is coming out with a version of that within the year, I think. It, it is funny how that specific play, Roman Polanski has a version Kurosawa has a version. Orson Welles has a version. In many ways, it seems like that play specifically is the catnip for filmmakers. But I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. It's always funny to me that one of the greatest Shakespeare adaptations has no Shakespeare in it when you think of his poetry or in English. And yet it's so true to the soul and heart of Shakespeare. And Welles used to say the big mistake that people make is that they're so beholden to the plays that they're overly respectful and they don't transport the spirit of the plays. And I think think the big danger with Shakespeare is just having film theater and people being like, man, that's a great performance or what a great monologue. But that's not what Shakespeare wanted. Shakespeare wanted you to be absorbed in the story. And I think Kurosawa does that. And I think that speaks to his career. Kurosawa's his style as a director. He is someone who, if what he can show in camera can express things better than the words spoken, he chooses that. And I think that's such an interesting thing that a lot of times it's the opposite. It's very easy to speak the things to let people know what they should be feeling or what a character's feeling. But if Kurosawa can show that genuine character moment as a reflection visually he chooses it. I also found a great article by Mike D'Angelo about back in like 2016 when The Revenant was coming out and there was this big talk about actors who just put everything they do into a role physically and that performance and he talked about Throne of Blood with Mifune and that finale with the arrow shooting which are apparently mostly real arrows and Kurosawa <laughs> talked about how it's one of this performance and him and Mifune talked about it and Mifune had protective boards to ensure that if he got hit it wouldn't penetrate his flesh but the spell spectacle of watching that, knowing that it's a real thing, and that actor is genuine. I don't know how he got him to agree to it, because it was a consensual thing, but him doing it, knowing that it's real, is like a shocking conclusion, because I think so much of the violence was off-screen, that you have this insane moment to end things with on top of it all. Ron and Dreams, both are my favorites. Ron particularly, because I was obsessed with the Criterion Collection when I was my teen years, and Ron was like the main one I wanted to get for my collection. It took me five years just to get the Criterion from Amoeba. I spent $50 on it and probably the greatest thing I ever bought and I ever watched. The whole plot and purpose and setting of the movie is incredible. Just that opening scene with the clouds and then it cuts to the dudes like trying to kill this boar and then to piss off their sons that uh, the king doesn't want to rule anymore and he just wants to leave it off and they don't like that. The whole movie is just shot beautifully as well. And and as for his last samurai movie, he went off in, in the blaze because that movie is top-notch quality. I always love the sequence where he's in the castle and, and they're invading him and he's just sitting there 
he's gonna die. He knows he's gonna die, but he's just like waiting for him to get him. And all the arrows are shooting right at him. And then basically everything just goes up in flames. And there's this great shot where he walks out of the castle. And the dudes just don't do nothing. Just see him walk away. And the castle just goes up in a blaze. That was like always my favorite shot in the whole movie. As for Dreams, Dreams is just beautiful. Each scene to me is like basically it is a painting he's he's painting out everything he sees especially the vincent van gogh part which is incredible because i want to know how he got martin scorsese to be in that part well wouldn't you if akira kurosawa asked you to act in one of his films what would you say yeah (laughs) and and it's funny because kurosawa did something in the 90s he made two other movies with the post-nuclear trauma on on japan rasputin august is one of them and his last film madadaya and it's interesting that he did that i feel like he's he wanted to give one last point about nuclear uh, powering and uh, and all that kind of stuff you know absolutely the kurosawa seemed obsessed his whole life, as I think many people who lived through World War II in Japan would be, with the dangers of nuclear bombs and the nuclear power. I mean, that theme pops up in I Live in Fear, it pops up in Dreams, it pops up in Rhapsody in August. And it's funny, Ed, when you, when you mentioned Ron, too, just to Daniel, that's another Shakespeare adaptation. That's King Lear. That's probably the best adaptation of King Lear ever to be filmed on screen. I think you're probably right. And Lear is my favorite Shakespeare. I found it almost too much. Every time I read it, it's too much in there in, in a beautiful, horrible way. And Kurosawa gets at it. But yeah, and it's amazing that he made that movie when he was in his mid-70s, too. I like to talk about what I consider the great old man movies or great old people movies, because a lot of times a point comes where a filmmaker or a musician or a writer, they kind of are coast. No, I don't want to say coasting. That's not the right way, because I mean, I haven't even made a feature and I'm 43. I'd love to coast and at least have that opportunity. But um, where you don't feel like maybe they, they're as engaged and have the fire. And when you see Kurosawa's Ron, and I feel this way about Louis Boonwell's The Discreet Object of Desire. I feel this way actually about uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. I feel this way actually about Martin Scorsese's Irishman in silence. I think there are certain older director movies where you're like, oh no, they're coming back. Like they got the fire. And that always inspires me. And Ron is one of them. So I probably have the least amount of experience with Kurosawa out of the four of us. If I had to guess, I think I've only seen about five of his movies. And one of them I watched last night, which was High and Low, which I did quite quite a bit. Probably my favorite of his. I can definitely see you mentioned Zodiac, and it especially reminded me in the latter half. The idea that it's like a crime that's kind of already happened, and it's about people investigating it on that end, as opposed to like a sort of procedural where they're trying to stop a crime. I think I admire Kurosawa more than I've enjoyed his movies, to be perfectly honest. I haven't disliked any of his movies, but I've, I think I've talked in the past about how I tend to like Western stuff more. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but a big kind of cutoff for me is that like most favorite movies of mine are from the 60s and onward, which High and Low is from the 60s, which I think makes sense that I would like it as much. Sometimes with older films, there's this thing, and maybe this is its own conversation, but I was thinking about this a lot. I have friends who are like on either side of this. I have friends who don't want to listen to anything new because they're like, well, why would I listen to that? There's all this old stuff. And then I have also have friends who don't want to listen to anything old for like the inverse reason. I like to think I'm not like that, but I do think there's something interesting about knowing kind of where your sweet spot is to a certain degree. And I think Kurosawa probably exists outside of that, but I've really admired his stuff. There is like times, the first like five minutes of high and low, I was a little bit like, uh uh-oh, whenever they're like sitting down and it's like, 
We're the directors of the company. This guy handles marketing. That guy handles distribution. I handle the finances. You run the uh, the factory. That's your assistant. And I'm like, there's no way you could take that dialogue and do it now and it not come <laughs> off as like... But I was very taken by the way he did blocking and compositions, specifically towards the end of High and Low when they're trailing the bad guy who strangely looks like Anthony Perkins to me. And when he's in that little club towards the end. Oh, it's such a great sequence to do the handoff of the dope. Yeah. And there's that shot where he's at the bar and he's like looking into the crowd and then he looks away and then you start seeing all the faces of the police people in the crowd turn towards him and start staring at him, thinking about that kind of composition in terms of how he places bodies i've never really seen somebody use blocking like that that whole movie is like that of creating compositions almost entirely just from how you're staging the people there's very few times in that movie especially towards the beginning and end especially towards the beginning where they're just kind of in that house for most of it he really isn't using like objects a lot of times he's really just using the people Interestingly, Kurosawa, along with John Ford, Orson Welles, and a handful of other directors, is often the filmmaker's filmmaker. It was funny for this Edgar Wright new documentary, the Sparks documentary that Daniel and Edwin are really into. It was funny to see that the slug line of it is your favorite band's favorite band. And I feel like Akira Kurosawa is like your favorite director's favorite director. I normally tend to like to shoot on a wider angle lens, and that's just me. For people who are really into the visuals of movies, I am a big fan of like a 20 millimeter. I just like the way the movement feels. I love to stage oneers like that, yada, yada. And I was always very nervous about long lenses. And for the audience, what that means is um, when you talk about a number of a lens, the smaller the number, it means the wider angle it is. And what wide angle means is that you see more um, movement feels different. If you get too wide, it feels like you're looking through a fisheye in a hotel room. But it's a very unique feeling that emphasizes and exaggerates movement. When you go on a longer lens, that means the number will go to 50, 100, 150, 200. You go to a longer lens, it flattens everything. So you actually don't feel movement the same way, but it also beautifies everything. So a lot of cinematographers prefer to shoot close-ups on 80s, 85s, 100s, because actors' aberrations on their faces get flattened a little bit and they all look better looking when you shoot on a longer lens. And I've actually always disliked longer lenses for that exact reason. I feel like it gets rid of life a little bit. But when you see Kurosawa, and to your point, Connor, he is a master of the long lens. And the only way that you can get that club sequence is he must have been on a 100 or 150 or a 200. This is my guess. It must have been a set in Toho. He must have been up in the rafters with the cameras. They must have been on 150s because that's the only way you get that sense of movement you have in there and all the bodies upon the bodies almost like they're a wave and you just there's so much visual richness in it and how you don't get reflections of the camera in his glasses because i was looking for that too i was like where's akira and, but that's it but then you you see somebody you're like oh right if you're really creative you know how to use long lenses for anything and in fact kurosawa finally inspired me to do a long lens shot i'm really proud of in a short film i made and now i alternate between the two but i was not a big fan until i really got to know kurosawa there's a reason he's taught as sort of like this 
pinnacle filmmaker. And I think even if some of the sensibilities have changed or adjusted or evolved in modern filmmaking, the chance to look back at why why something like this works so well and why 67 years out, something like Seven Samurai or really any of his filmography is considered to has the prestige it has, is a testament to the filmmaking. And I think that their restrictions back then to him were all just the challenges of how do I tell the story correctly? Because he didn't have the technology that assists us now. I think the technology that assists us now is a beautiful storytelling tool. But when you don't have that, you adapt. The same way when you have no money, you adapt to tell the story the only way you can. Kurosawa's use of everything he can to tell his stories is why his stuff speaks so profoundly to people. We've kind of all talked briefly about it, but I think a lot of his stuff from his movement, his set design, and I think especially with Kurosawa, because I'm not mistaken, he's, he's again one of the few directors who edited his own work. In that mindset, which is a mindset I mean, I don't personally have, I think he knows with what he's creating, how he's going to move from production into post-production to edit things. And I think there's a flow to his stuff that's hard, even if you're trying so hard to get it, it just seems to be so natural for him and the way that his brain thinks. He loves to cut on movement to a point that you don't realize cuts are happening. His storytelling flow is all about hiding Within a scene, the pace of the scene is controlled so singularly by him because he wants to control your emotion within it, which I think is the general conceit of a director. But he, the way he hides cuts is always within these movements that you don't realize that you've cut sometimes. Someone moves and you're wider, but your brain hasn't clicked to that. It's just, this is going on. We talked also about his visual storytelling over dialogue, and there's, there's stuff I think a lot about with that where you have in Seven Samurai when they I forget I remember the scene but are they burying someone at the top of the hill when he puts the yeah they're burying the samurai who brought the comic relief to them that's the type of thing that I think someone and it would probably be effective as well but you have sort of the lead turn around and he gives a speech about why this person was important but instead he buries his sword in the grave and he turns around and he slouches into the ground and it pulls back to this wide shot and everyone else just kind of crumbles down with him and nothing's spoken and I think there's just interesting things in his wheelhouse that are always, especially from a visual storytelling perspective, that any modern film, any young filmmaker especially, should turn to. And some of his, I mean, you can find on YouTube his stuff to screenwriters and the amount of stuff he gives back of like, hey, here's things that I think work for storytelling that would work seems invaluable. Like Connor was saying, even if it's not your vibe, I think the stuff you can admire about him and what he can tell you about stuff that you can then take and modernize for your own storytelling endeavors is, is insane to me. In terms of what I was saying earlier about like time periods, I think that there is an argument to be made about a lack of sophistication in the context of older stuff sometimes. But I think the inverse of that is the purity of older stuff and the sort of like raw film and storytelling potential of it when you're seeing sort of people at a much sort of earlier point uh, you know, film is not that old of a medium in terms of major art forms. It's like extraordinarily new. <laughs> it is always kind of a weird thing when people talk about like not watching older films as if people are like reading English books from like a thousand years ago. I think most people who talk about the classics aren't reading like old English. I think about that one section in Ulysses where it goes into old English and I remember that was like the hardest part of Ulysses to read because I'm like what is even these words? <laughs> but I do think there is something about with older stuff is that purity in seeing somebody at a place unrestricted by convention in certain ways, by the legacy of what they have, and to see what they are bringing to it. And what I've gotten from Kurosawa more than anything is he seems like he, uh, on a storytelling level, likes playing with structure in a lot of different ways. Kai and Lowe, again, for instance, has an interesting thing where the first third of that movie is basically all in that house. 
And then suddenly in the last half of that movie, we're everywhere. It's cutting, 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 cutting. Or Akiru, which I didn't really like this as much, but I will admit because I think I was unprepared for it. Oh, yeah, it's one of the most shocking structural things in everything he's done. When he passed away, my brain went, oh, we must be towards the end of the film, right? (laughs) When it didn't end, I remember my brain being like, what? (laughs) But I think maybe revisiting it, I would appreciate that more. Um, He deals a lot with people. The movie, you're going to show the desk again yes that film particular that has to deal a lot with about people but uh, as you can tell it fell at the box office and put him in the deep depression he is considered one of the greatest directors of crowd scenes and of epics and of what connor was saying this ability to have like a thousand extras charging on a hill or a war or a battle. But somehow all of that is so rich because he's so focused on all of that coming out of character and character story. Whereas I think a lot of later directors maybe uh, get a little obsessed with movement or color or spectacle, but it's, it's really interesting for the human brain. I, you know, and I guess this is an obvious statement to make, but if you don't have anything, any in like with any of these characters, or you're not invested. And I don't mean to speak in screenplay, like, mumbo jumbo but if you're not invested in the stakes of the characters then all that spectacle doesn't really move you but if you are invested in it then that spectacle is like overpowering and somehow kurosawa totally got that and i think it's what you said edwin because it always was about a human story i mean he's considered one of our great humanist directors and he's kind of like the japanese spielberg and mars corsese Mainly Martin Scorsese because he always used Toshiro Mifune. That's basically his Robert De Niro. Or Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg are the acolytes of Akira Kurosawa. Just go what I said, man. Why gotta kill it? <laughs> That's a good point. There, there are too many things because he's so he's so important to me. And as we always say, we'll come back and do a Seven Samurai episode. We'll come back and do a High and Low episode. We'll probably come back and do an Akuru episode. We definitely need to come back and do a High and Low episode because I got some questions about the way Japanese law works. I was very <laughs> confused about. You just scattershot some things I want to say about Kurosawa is read his something like an autobiography. Read Donald Ritchie's The Movies of Akira Kurosawa because there's actually a lot of contemporaneous interviews with Kurosawa while he was making his masterpieces because Richie was interviewing him in the 50s. It's kind of amazing. Richie was on the set when they were making Throne of Blood and Kurosawa would then go to Richie and be like, this is what I was thinking. So Kurosawa said that movies are really like nothing else. He said they have a little bit of literature, a little bit of the theater, a little bit of art, a little bit of some other sculpture, a little bit of design. But he said in the end, they're movies. They're their own thing. But if you ask me what art form movies were the closest to, I would say it's music. When he encouraged writers to get better at the writing, he'd ask them to listen to symphonies. And I'm obsessed with symphonies, particular, I mean, whatever, I'm not going to ramble off all the symphonies, but, you know, I'll listen to Beethoven's Seventh. I'll give you an example. And the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh is stunning. And it's a total contrast from the first movement. And you read it and you're like, Kurosawa is telling you how acts should feel. Act one should be a contrast with act two, should be a contrast with act three. And then there should be a synthesis in act four. And yet, the musicality frees you up from being literal. The musicality allows you to be psychological or it allows you to be transcendent. Or I mean, you know, Connor, you and I love David Lynch and you watch a David Lynch movie, (laughs) you know, and that is not a literal picture by any means. And yet it works as cinema. And Kurosawa got that. And he kept trying to communicate to people. You've got to listen to music. (laughs) You've got to listen to amazing music and symphonic music and your scripts will be better. And he always used to say, people ask him what the most important stage of filmmaking was. And he said, well, I would say editing 
because that's what he loved the most. But he said, if you didn't shoot anything, then you couldn't edit. So that's not fair. And he said, but you know what? If I didn't have a screenplay that inspired everybody, then I had nothing to shoot. And he said, so in the end, the screenplay is the most important thing because it is the battle flag you go into a movie with. And if you have a great screenplay, everybody is psyched. Everybody's going to like give their all. He said, if you have a bad screenplay, you're not going to get that. And it's compromised from the beginning. And I just always felt like, man, there's a cat. Pop culture and final thoughts. Netflix has this new trilogy of movies coming out called Fear Street. And they're based on old R.L. Stein books from the 90s that I read. And they're sort of aimed at teenagers, but hard R's. And the first one's called Fear Street Part 1, 1994. And it rules. It's like scream-esque horror comedy it winks at you but never like making fun of you it is a horror slasher thing through and through and they're connected somehow i'm not quite sure how i don't really remember the books but last friday part two 1978 came out and then this friday part three 1666 comes out and it links the whole thing and it's such a cool idea and like it's really good i feel like it'll become kind of a bigger talking point around halloween but it rules Um, I also got to go see Tati's Playtime, which I had never seen before and now I'm obsessed with. Talking about staging of stuff, I saw it, there's 35 print and the subtitle, there were no subtitles on it. So unless they spoke in English, I don't understand a single word that was being said. And it completely works because that entire thing is like these very long, wide shots, sort of, it's kind of got a Mr. Bean vibe of a lot of physical comedy, a lot of visual gags. And it is unbelievable. There's a restaurant sequence that I have no concept how he pulled off. Everything that can go wrong and everything that can happen and the way it shifts and divides is unbelievable. It's sort of this singular thing and I, I feel like I've undervalued Tati and now I've got to go back and watch. Daniel, you still haven't seen Twin Peaks The Return, have you? I have not. For everybody who's seen The Return and knows what I'm talking about here, when a lot of people were really confused about the Dougie story, I always felt like David Lynch has always been on the record about how much he loves Tati and I felt like this must have been this idea he had had for 10 years and he finally was like, I'm doing it. And I think the Dougie part of Twin Peaks The Return is David Lynch's version of a Tati movie. And I just want to go on the record. I love Dougie. I had no problem with what is it? 15 episodes of Doug? <laughs> <laughs> I know other people did, but I loved it. Uh, and finally, I watched, there's a Criterion sale happening at Barnes & Noble. I picked up Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, which used to be my favorite Bong Joon-ho. Still might be up there with Parasite, but it's basically a, a procedural about South Korea's first, what would become known as their first serial killer. I mean, I've talked a lot about Bong Joon-ho, but the way he combines sort of genres and tones within character so that they feel real and not jarring, I don't know if anyone is close to him in that regard. It's so good. And the Blu-ray is packed with like this hour and a half long making of documentary. And for someone's sophomore feature is insane, but also I just can't comprehend and I've really been trying to study it. The comprehension of genre and like tone when it relates to characters, how you get away with having like these brutal, cold, calculated, uncaring murders with these like sort of idiotic cops who can't seem to get anything right and using their frustration of like being unable to move up in the world against the audience's frustration of their decision making and also like this mystery that you're not really sure if you're going to get a clean outcome from is I think insane. It's an incredible movie. Highly recommend. Hey, so the movies are back. I got to see Black Widow at IMAX with uh, a bunch of friends, not all my friends, some did not join. <laughs> it was a fun experience. The movie itself is all right. It's to be fair, it's kind of I would say a, a lesser Marvel film though. To also be fair, a lesser MCU film is still one of my favorite movies I've seen this year, which 
has maybe to do with having not seen a lot of movies this year so far. So we'll see where it ends up by the end of the year, probably a lot lower down. I'm speaking mostly negative, but it was a really fun time being in a theater, being in that environment again, seeing a movie like that with friends. Go check it out. I'm sure it doesn't need any help. I think it's doing very well, considering uh, we're still sort of coming out of the pandemic. I was going to say, the universal positive of that movie, thoughts aside, is Florence Pugh is a star. She's the best thing in everything she touches. Florence Pugh is great, and I would say the first half especially, if you liked the sort of Winter Soldier-style, smaller, hand-to-hand combat stuff, has some great action beats in its first half before it goes probably too big in its latter half. But anyways, uh, you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Just went to the draft house a couple days, a couple weeks ago. Saw the Sparks Brothers again for the third time. Before that, I went to Amoeba. I picked up a lot of Jerry Goldsmith tracks, probably one of the greatest tracks he's ever done. King Solomon's Mine, probably the best Indiana Jones adaptation ever. I think it's better than Indiana Jones than anything because... Richard Chamberlain is amazing. Sharon Stone, she's a babe. And uh, today, I am going to watch probably the greatest Hong Kong kung fu movie ever made. Came out of the 90s, starring one of the greatest action heroes, Jet Li. Uh, Once Upon a Time in China 1 and 2, double feature. Do what you gotta do and uh, don't be a hero. The Godmother in Shrek 2 sings, I Need a Hero. So really, you gotta David like... Bowie sang about heroes, well, remember? Well, well, I like Tina Turner's version or whatever. You, you tell me when she's in Shrek. That's very godlike could burn in hell. Boom. Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, go watch it. I will say that I loved Edwin trained our summer intern Jackson Hyde Saturday night, and you never called him by his name. You just called him kid all night, <laughs> which was busting me up. You kept saying like, listen, kid, come over here, kid. This is how you do it, kid. <laughs> and I mean, Jackson was very like receptive. And I was like, wow, Edwin's the old man now. The old timer, the seasoned veteran. So we did at the Million Dollar Theater Eraserhead and uh, Mulholland Drive. Daniel was there. Sarah Bach was there. Casey came by. And Edwin was there. And he stepped in and actually did a big help because it was our biggest audience. It was great. It was nonstop. Um, I just had to watch Eraserhead. I was reminded again. I've been really obsessed with Orson Welles lately and Orson Welles interviews. And they ask Orson Welles at the end of this interview in 82 about people who come up to him and say, hey, you were a big influence on me. And Wells said, and it was like brilliant to me. I was like, this is why he was Orson Welles. Orson Welles was like, I don't get that. I don't understand why people do that. I wish they wouldn't do it. And he wasn't being coy or falsely modest. And the interviewer was like, well, what do you mean? And he was like, I don't want anyone to be like me. You should be like yourself. He said, you know, I love watching movies, but when I made movies, I wasn't trying to be anyone else. I was just doing it the way I saw the world and things I wanted to experiment with, cutting and the camera. And and that's just what I did. And he said, I don't want people wasting whatever opportunities they get on filmmaking trying to be me that's pointless and uh when i was watching Eraserhead, i just couldn't help but be remembered that david lynch is a guy who loves movies he's totally on the book about rear windows sunset boulevard Otto preminger's laura all these movies that influence wizard of oz that influenced his films and he often puts in references i mean while at heart literally references wizard of oz but nevertheless david lynch made a david lynch film when he made Eraserhead. And I was watching it, and I, I just thought, I don't know if he couldn't help but do it, but it, the act of courage to take four years and convince people to make this film, and people were like, okay, we believe in your vision, I mean, literally, and then to have it come out, and then to be watching it 45 years later almost, 44 years later, in this packed house of people rediscovering it, it just reminded me, if you really, really are committed to cinema, 
you have to jump off that cliff and be committed to making movies the way you see things and experiment that way. And that's terrifying. And finding that voice, sometimes you have to work through your influences anyway. I mean, all of us do. But I just watching Eraserhead reminded me, you know, those people who have the courage to experiment by their own inner compass. Those are the movies that are the fascinating pictures. So uh, thank you, everybody, for talking about Kurosawa and uh, being here again, representing every week in and out and doing this. We're on episode 65. We're on TikTok now, yo. So if everybody, you've been warned, yeah, Secret Movie Club is on TikTok. So get ready for some original content. Oh, Connor's flossing. Oh I tweeted a photo of the marquee at the... Oh, that blew up, homie. Yeah, it was like 500 likes. I don't understand why, but... No, thank you. Dan well, Daniel, you've been doing a lot of that. So I, what Whatever it is, it, it's teamwork. Just yet again, this is because it's all happening and it's it's sincere movie love. So thank you. Daniel, did you show Craig getting called out for his long intros on Reddit? Oh, I don't think I did. Oh, no, so what happened? When the Vista got bought, someone on Reddit made a thing and they were like, hey, does this affect Secret Movie? Like, okay, someone someone commented, please, please let Secret Movie Club continue to do what they do after the reopening. They do wonderful things and screen wonderful movies. And it has like... 600 up arrows and then someone responded as long as I don't ramble on for 30 minutes before the show it's midnight start the fucking movie already <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny where I was like ah he's been there <laughs> he can join an incredible club that also involves Matthew Modine of people who have been frustrated by the <laughs> we had a guy that left that came out of our night with John Woo and he had come in late and he was like when is the movie starting who was this guy speaking and I was like that's John Woo and he was like what how long is he going to be talking? And I was like, I don't know, probably like an hour at least. Like, that's, did you not read the thing? He's like, I thought it was just the movie. He's like, I didn't realize that was him. And it reminded me of that social network moment when they leave the Bill Gates thing. And the guy's like, and I got here late. I don't even know who the speaker was. And he goes, that was Bill Gates. And he's like, oh, <laughs> that makes sense. Incredible. I love it. Uh, so there you go. This has been a very digressive episode in a fascinating <laughs> way. Um, Next week, Secret Movie Clubbers, Secret Movie Club Podcast 66. I'm going to have to overcome my superstition, but we are going to be talking about Jonathan Demi and the Talking Heads collaboration, Stop Making Sense, as well as uh, when directors or famous directors branch off and make a non-narrative interesting things, whether that's documentaries or concert films, and uh, we would love to have you. As always, I want to thank our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor Lloyd-Cruz, who continues to edit at a furious, furious pace, and you can find out everything we're doing at Secret movieclub.com. We will just say when you hear this, Friday night will probably be sold out. In fact, we might be sold out right now with Stop Making Sense. But on Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, we are doing Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus and David Lynch's Dune on 35mm and the Million Dollar Theater has 2,000 seats. So we do still have some seats there and uh, we'd love for you to come. And then you can just check out our entire July schedule on secretmovieclub.com. Alright, thank you, Edwin. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Connor. Have a great week, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I don't know what I said.